Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I'm Professor Selena Bartlett. Today, I'm joined by Sam Reggie. He's the founder of Talking Stories. He's also an academic at QUT, and he's teaching at UQ. We met at one of his inspiring events where he was one of the people that put together the launch of Voluntary Assisted Dying event at the Royal Brisbane Hospital. That's just one of the things he does. He specialises in capturing and preserving the unique life stories of individuals and families and other important relationships. He believes that every story is worth sharing and cherishing and that his approach goes beyond just photography. It's also about understanding the heart and soul of your journey and unearthing the extraordinary within the ordinary. And I think everyone listening understands why he's on this podcast. That's what we do. We love to bring out these beautiful people and shine a light to the world of what's actually the beauty that's happening in the world as well. So welcome, Sam. Thank you so much for giving us your time today and and helping everyone understand what you do. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast, Lena. It's, it's, it's an honour. So tell us, tell us, tell us your story. How did you end up making talking stories? Give us the journey. Um, wow. Um, so talking stories really came about, um, it's been something that I've always want, wanted to do. Um, it's been on the back of my mind because I work, um, you know, aside from being an academic and the founder of talking stories i also work as an independent journalist so my work involves working on stories um now i'm more specialized in working on long form stories so stories that take a long time to come together and i have a lot of multimedia elements to it so you know i play around with physical exhibitions but also then digital exhibitions but my main medium of communicating these stories are through photography and audio stories which is this unique mix of mediums that i've found to be very um, useful in conveying intimate stories um so i've done a few projects like that and um the the unifying factor among these projects was that medium of um trying to tell stories through photography and audio storytelling and so um, I've always been fascinated by these two mediums. And so it was always on the back of my mind to kind of do something like talking stories where I capture people's life stories and their legacies, be it professional or their family legacy, because I'm, I've am i always been very interested in legacies. Um, and why? And so I kind of, tell, tell us why. We've got to, we've got well, to find out why. Yeah. why. What's your purpose there? Well, I think it's mainly from my own family stories, you know, uh-huh. um, my grandparents' stories and my parents' stories, which I only have a very small glimpse into it from what they've told me. And they haven't told me as much, right? And so especially my mom's father, who died while she was quite young. Um, she was, I think, in 10th grade when he died. And, you know, yeah. Him being this figure in my life who I've never met, um, and I've only heard these very romantic or very interesting stories of him as a very powerful individual. Um, it's kind of wanted me to learn so much more about those stories that that legacy he's left on. And I've had like both my grandmothers; they're very independent. Um, they were very very strong women you know like we come from a society of strong women and uh, my grandmothers were very strong women and so they had very rich stories and i only got to know them when they were old and so i was always very curious to know what they were like when they were younger and i've never really had someone sit me down and tell me look this is what it was all like right i only got like little snippets into what their life was and i think Talking stories really comes from that. It comes, it is inspired by wanting to know more um, and for creating opportunities for people to convey that, convey those legacies as audio stories and through their 
portraiture. Now, with portraiture, again, it's inspired from that because when I look back, um, I have these portraits captured of my grandparents that I've seen, like these really cool portraits where they're posing in a studio, captured so well. Back then, they didn't take millions of photos on their phone cameras. Nice. They didn't have phone cameras, right? Whereas now we take millions of photos on our phone cameras, but we don't have one good portrait of us um, because not everyone's a good photographer. And so Talking Stories came out of that, wanting to know these stories, wanting to know these legacies, and also to then capture a portrait that someone will kind of keep for the rest of their lives. Um, yeah, so I think that's what inspired Talking Stories for me personally, um, and this curiosity for people's life stories and their legacies. So for and people I, listening that don't aren't aware of Talking Stories, do you want to just uh, take a little bit of a journey through some of the projects that you've done to give people a sense of what it is that you're doing? Yeah, so Talking Stories is actually, um, we're very much in the early stages of Talking Stories. Like I'm still in the process of conceptualizing it into a business. So we've just kind of, I've just launched it as a business literally uh, end of July, just start of July. Um, and it's been inspired by these projects that I've worked on as a journalist. So the pro- one of the big projects that I kind of finished and parked was this project called My Little Sunshine, which I finished in uh, Feb this year. And that was about me documenting what grief is like for families who um, who just had a child die. So I was in those very intimate settings where I'm you know, capturing images of um, children at a children's hospice while they're in that process of dying and then capturing those stories of parents and families as they go through that process of grief and trying to document what grief is all about. Can I so, ask you who was like, who kind of um, made that project happen and how, how did you get people to agree to do it? And Yeah, so the project came about like five years ago when I pitched this idea to Fiona Hawthorne, who is who was the former general manager of Hummingbird House. Uh-huh. And she kind of put forward that idea to her board and her manager of staff. And they all agreed that this would be a good um, project. So I kind of was brought in as like an artist in residence and I kind of worked with Hummingbird House over a span of five years. And my connected to the families was Hummingbird House yes. and the staff there. And for a project like that, um, for that to come about, it takes a lot of trust um you know without that trust it's impossible so me as a journalist i had to spend about a year to gain the trust of the of the staff and the people at hummingbird house so i'd go to these different events they'd see me they'd know me a bit and then i'd volunteer my time as a photographer for hummingbird house fair bit so like that the staff that started to trust me and i, I had some really great advocates from within hummingbird house um, who in Fiona and in their family counselor, Elam Day, who's still working there. These two big advocates kind of really helped me cement that trust with Hummingbird House and the staff there. And then the staff kind of became my connectors into the lives of the families. So for me, uh, the staff was that proxy. So I just had to kind of get gain the trust of the staff. And because the families trusted the staff, they would then immediately trust me. Of course. Um, So you have to tell us, Sam, after that amazing journey, uh, one, what you learnt that the audience should know that we may not be aware of because we haven't been on that journey, and two, did it transform anything about your life? Oh, um, big question, yeah. Um, Now, what have I learned? I've learned so much more about grief um, because I've I've had to deal with grief in my life before that project. But going into that project, I was a witness to grief in its most rawest form. Um, and so I was kind of a witness to how grief really personifies in people's lives. And I really learned that grief does not end it's not that five stages of grief that, um, you know, People philosophers have. have 
you know, yeah, Kubla Ross talked about um, in during her time. Even Kubla Ross kind of came to a decision that it's I not know. that fragmented. No, uh, I think know. when she was going through her own, I believe, is what I heard. Exactly, exactly. When she was going through her own experience of grief, she rewrote a lot of her works. But by then, her work had become so popular and people had kind of subscribed to this idea of five stages of grief. And so I was able to see all these different stages of grief, but it's not how it manifests, how Kubler-Ross has, has had written or how it is kind of in the popular zeitgeist of how grief should be. Um, and to me, it was such a privilege, such an honor to be in those spaces where I was trusted by these families at their rawest um moments in their lives and to kind of trust me to keep a record of that yes, even though that can to help be, other people with transferring yeah. their grief to help other people yeah so i saw so much strength there um and so in terms of that i really learned my own process as a photographer as a storyteller i really learned what i prioritize in myself as a storyteller um and I was really able to experiment and create a body of work that I'm so proud of at the moment. Um, so, so, yes, in terms so, of what I've so learned, that, I've learned as that, you, yeah. yeah, as you uh, took some of that journey, I bet it transformed how the end of the work that you did over that five-year period. I bet you were learning as you were going, and that probably changed how you finished it out is my guess. I don't know. Is that? Would that be oh, right? Most, most definitely. I didn't go into it um, wanting to document grief. Um, I went into it to document death. Oh, and I interesting. Found, and I found grief on the way. Um, and I found grief to be a much more complex and difficult adversary in that journey to document. So... Um, you know, while there are all these human characters in that story, grief itself was the biggest character in that story. It's universal. Um, yeah, it is universal. And it's not something that I went looking for. Instead, I found during the process of documenting death that I found grief. And I, it had such a powerful impact that I could not ignore it. Um, and I had to turn my attention to grief. And then grief became the main character in my story. So do you mind, if you don't mind, Sam, can you expand for people listening that may be not experienced the same kind of traumatic grief or, I mean, everyone's grief is grief, but do you want to just sit in that for a little bit to expand on what you mean by grief? Like yeah, you're, for you're sure. talking but, um, about it in a really deep way, right? It's not j just a word. It's a whole process yeah. that you're uncovering there, and I'm sure you uncovered it in your story, but I'd love you to audio uncover that for the audience listening yeah yeah for sure well grief itself right like so i'll take you through my process right so and how i kind of discovered it and what i came out with in the end so essentially as i said i wanted to document death right and so as i was in that journey of documenting i was documenting death but then i was confronted with grief so much and its complexity right there's grief in itself it's not one single emotion. It's such a complex structure that um, is so full of all these different emotions and these different way of being human. Um, like one of the quotes that really kind of stood out to me when I was doing interviews with the staff was um, a staff member told me that I asked her, what is grief to you? And she said, grief is just love. It's this intense manifestation of love um and that just absolutely struck me because you can't have grief if you don't love someone um and so I, it's that opposite yeah. side of that coin where when you think of love love you might think of it as flowery and romantic and all of that but there is another side of love and that's where grief exists um that's where grief comes from and so I oh, was able so to... beautiful, Sam. Yeah, so I, was I do able think to... I do think real grief comes is the price of love. Yes, yes, um, 
And that's exactly it. it is that price of love. Um, and so when I set out to kind of document the story as an audio story, as an audio documentary, that's what I wanted to show. I wanted to show grief through that love. Um, and oh, how so beautiful. That's just yeah. so be- that must have been just such a transformational moment for you. I can just feel it. Oh, yes, it was. Um, because when I tell people, look, I made this audio documentary on grief, immediately people tend to think, oh, it's it, it would be such a traumatic documentary. Uh, I don't know if I'd be comfortable listening to that. But then the way that documentary is created is that it shows grief from the perspective of love. So when you come out of it, you're not, you might shed a few tears, but it's, it's, it's tears of having this privilege to be into someone's life and to peek into the life of these of this of these two families who take you and embrace you with that love you know so it's more about love Um, than it is about the trauma of grief god Um, that is so like i'm just like got goosebumps all over me seriously i think it's the most beautiful way of expressing love that people tend to not look at it that way exactly so it's you know, coming out of it, you can't look at it from a Kubler-Ross perspective anymore. You know, it's not five stages. It is something that you carry on with you for the rest of your life. Absolutely. Um, And it will go through different stages. It will go through different manifestations of it. It's more about how to live with it, isn't it? Exactly. It is how you live with it. Um, And that's that's what it's all it's really all about you know and i think for five years i had the absolute privilege of being at the forefront of that and i think i think for me i i had to stop working on that project after i had my own child my first born and i think it became also real for me at that moment um, not even at that moment when she came about, but just even like, you know, as I started to bond with her a little bit more um, after that, those initial months, I think that's when it got really real to me. And I was like, okay, I need to finish working on this project because yeah. I'll be working on this project. If I don't stop now, I'll be working yeah. on it for the rest of my life or I'll have to take an extended break before I revisit this. Um, yeah. So I think for me at that point in time, it was the perfect project to work on um and i was in the right headspace i had the mental capacity to work on it and to really reflect deeply on each part of it so that i could then take those considerations into actually framing the narrative for the story so if people want to see that is there a place they could go and look at it yes so there's a website called my little sunshine stories my little sunshine story yeah so my little sunshine stories.com Okay, I'll put that link into the podcast so people can go and have a look. Yeah, so you can see. Um, so how I've done that is so now that story is like a virtual exhibition now. So essentially you can look through the photo stories that I captured in that um, and that should kind of give you a frame of reference, a visual frame of reference that you can then take on as you listen to the audio story because I've found in that process that audio is the most intimate medium to convey and to tell stories because with video what you're doing is you're visually watching something in front of you so there is that sense of disconnect between the viewer and the medium um, because you're viewing something happening in front of you whereas with audio story you're listening to the story and when someone's telling your story, you imagine mm-hmm. what they're telling you. You imagine the world that they're putting you in. And so you inadvertently put yourself in that position. And so for me, I think taking telling this telling this broad story of grief as an audio story worked perfectly well because I needed that level of intimacy to bring my audience into this story and to kind of situate them in that reality with those families. And so you get the visual reference by looking at the photo essays and the photo stories. And then after you've taken that in, you go in and listen to the audio. I think it will make such a strong impact. Um, 
Wow. And yeah, narrative wise, I've played with that as well. So you might come out of the photo essays with some understanding of grief for them. And you listen to the audio story, it kind of takes you to that next dimension. Wow. So this is a really great segue to how I met you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so just for anyone listening, uh, there's an amazing um, professor at QUT called Yvonne Miller, who I follow because I'm also a professor at QUT. And I was just I just want to go and support her. Well, I just saw it on LinkedIn. She was part of the launch of the Voluntary Assisted Dying at the Royal Brisbane Hospital, the first 100 days launch. Um, for people that aren't aware in Queensland, uh, we the legislation got changed where under certain very tight conditions, people could make a choice to um, that are at, in terminal situations to choose voluntary assisted dying. And I met you at that event because you were the person interviewing all these amazing families that were willing to share their story of their journey into what you call VAD. And I was just so taken by that event. And obviously I was there to support Yvonne um, and the whole concept that Queensland actually has this, which I was a bit surprised by in itself. So do you want to tell us a little bit how you got involved in that, uh, Sam, and and tell us oh, a, for sure. all about that journey, like you just told us about the other one? Yeah, so there's, an, again, very interesting stories here too. Um, so my work with Yvonne, Yvonne is my supervisor for my MPhil, my, my MPhil, which looked into the Royal Commission into Age Care and the media coverage around that. So I worked with Yvonne on that. And then I had this period of three months, which was my HDI internship. And so what Yvonne did was she just kind of deployed me and my skills to all these different stories. Um, and one of them was the WAD project. Now, with the VAD project, um, it came right after I just kind of closed my work on My Little Sunshine. And so after I'd finished My Little Sunshine, I was like, oh, I don't know if I can work on another story about death for another 10 years at least. Um, and I think I've kind of built this reputation as a death journalist now. But anyways, the dead coming journalist, to this, did you say? No, the death journalist, you know, death I've done, journalist. yeah, yeah. So anyways, um, so I've I decided I'm not going to do anything on death or dying grief for another 10 years at least. But then this opportunity came up and it was an opportunity to document what voluntary assisted dying, what the voluntary assisted dying team in Metro North has been able to achieve in the last 100 days. And so for me, immediately I was like, okay, it's an opportunity to document history. Um, and so, and because it is something that I'm quite comfortable working with, I was like immediately, look, I have to do this. So Yvonne was like, she gave me the full, she gave me full reins on it and she said, go ahead and do what you want with it. And so when I approached this story on voluntary assistance dying, I thought it would be a, some form of continuation from the story the My Little Sunshine stories, right? I thought I would be confronted with grief again. And so I kind of knew enough about grief to approach it in a different way. So that was faster. my... You had a yeah, faster on ramp. Exactly. It was like three months. So I had to smash it out in three months. So I was like, okay, I can smash it out in three months. You know, I've, I know grief as, you know, a companion now. So, you know, I'm you're willing to tell... Yeah, yeah. So I'm willing to show this in a different way now. But what I was confronted with in this story was not grief. This time I actually found death. And that was interesting. So it was sudden shift back to documenting death and what dying is all about, right? So what I'd initially set out to try and achieve with My Little Sunshine, I was able to achieve with the voluntary assisted dying story because this time I was able to investigate that and that what really came about with the one to dying stories was this um the importance of choice um choice in choosing how to die um and so with my first interview onwards i started interviewing the staff i thought okay um, when i start interviewing the participants it's going to be very raw like my little sunshine story so i'm going to have to take that approach to this 
still ask those difficult questions because I'm just doing a single interview. Whereas with My Old Sunshine, I worked with families for months and for years. This was just one interview. So I had to be direct, but also be very sensitive in how I approach this. So when I started interviewing the participants, I was, um, I was so surprised because the approach and the people I, I was interviewing was so different to what I'd experienced with my old sunshine because they were so full of energy and enthusiasm and a version of life that I'd never seen before. And so what they told me is like, look, I've, I've got a very limited time span now. I've got a very limited time before I die because I've decided on this date for me to die. So I just want to live life to the fullest before that. And so the people I met were the most inspirational people I've ever interviewed in my life. And I've done a lot of interviews. So it was just amazing to come across that energy and to talk about death and grief and these really philosophical topics with that level of energy and not look at it from a very morbid point of view um, or a traumatic point of view. Did that was, really shocked you? Yeah, that shocked me. That sh- shocked me. And But the moment I was confronted with that, I just instantly enjoyed that experience because it was so different to My Little Sunshine. And I wanted to stop My Little Sunshine at that at that experience. So this had sudden, suddenly become a new experience for me. And so it was, that adrenaline rush came back all over again. And, you know, I went and interviewed all these people. Um, and they were so eye-opening. Um, particularly around this, um, particularly around choice and why a person takes that choice. It's not a lighthearted choice. People really think deeply before making that choice and they explore all other avenues before making that choice. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not something people come to just because it's available to them anymore. No, it's not. And the process of going through it is quite rigorous too. You can't just apply for that and be approved for it. You've got to be approved by multiple doctors um, before being approved to it. You have to be assessed by the team, by the VAD team, taken to the council and all that. So and the whole topic itself also lends itself to a lot of dichotomous opinions. Yes, yes. But um, so about, I think I, it would be really lovely, Sam, because yeah. you are such a great storyteller and a journalist. Can you take us through, because I know there's, I've met the families and I know some of them are really willing to share their story. Mm. Would you like to take someone through this journey of one of the, your stories so that they get more of an understanding of what you're talking about? Sure. Um, so I've done a few of the stories, but one that they, you know, all of them were very unique and stood out to me for different reasons, but one that I'd really like to kind of talk about was, um, so I interviewed this man. His name is, I don't know if I can tell you his name, so I'll leave that out. So I, I interviewed this man at his home with his partner at their house. And I walked in and I was met by this man. He was quite frail because he was in that stage of cancer. Um, but he spoke with as I said, so much energy. And he was one of the first interviews that, that I did. Spoke with so much energy and spoke with so much love. So I put him and his partner together in that interview. And as they kind of asked each other questions. And that's the style of interview that I really like, um, where I kind of coach them on how to do it and they kind of ask me a question. So they just asked each other these beautiful organic questions about life and their legacy and their life stories. Um but one of the things that he said that really stood out to me is that he said, look, I've been on so many journeys in my life, right? And for all these journeys, I've had to pack a bag and I've had to be really ready for these journeys. But for this journey that I'm on, I'm unpacking. And if I don't fully unpack, then it's going to be a problem for me. So in the next two weeks, I'm really, really focused on unpacking before I leave. Wow. And that just that just floored me. You know, it was just he just said that. And I was like, oh my God. That just sums up this entire project for me. What well, do you think it, it sums up life? It does. It does. Exactly it does. Um, because you come with nothing and then you leave with nothing. So 
before people, you leave, you've got to people, make sure you unpack. Yes, and but just the whole journey is 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 accumulation of things that then you just nothing goes with you if you know what I mean. And yeah. so it's like it's all of a sudden this. What I think you're describing to me, read, I've read lots of eulogies and I'm really into all of that, the last lecture, everything to try and understand those last moments and what people do with their life. I like thinking backwards, <laughs> you know. Yes. And what you're describing to me is what I imagine. It's like, why did I focus on all of that, that unpacking, you know what I mean? Yeah, yes. And what he was doing in and at that moment, talking to me about his life stories, talking to me to me about his accomplishments and his legacy was also unpacking because he was telling me what he had accomplished in his life. Um and so that I had I have a version of what he's accomplished in his life. I have a story. So his he was story. unpacking his story onto me. And that's what I do, right? Like I give people that opportunity to unpack their story with me. So, and you know, everything that all the stories that I create, I give back. I give it back to the people um, that I work with. So the story that I did with this man and his wife, I give it back to them too. So it is a permanent record for them, right? So I think that record is so important for the people he's leaving behind. But for him at that moment, it was important for him to unpack that record before he left. Um, and so is this now like what happened in the Hummingbird Project that then led your mind through how you would focus the questions or the strategy for the rest of the interviews? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, now with my interviews, I take a few different approaches to the stories defined by the stories themselves. Um, and I also need to be flexible enough to kind of um, have enough flexibility to change my approach while doing the interviews as well. Um, but my approach to interviewing, my approach to storytelling comes from that point of sensitivity, which is inspired by Hummingbird story, the stories from Hummingbird House and the stories from WAD. It's to make sure that I respect those voices. I respect the legacies. I respect the life stories. Um, and I kind of give back as a way of memorializing those stories for the people who gave me the opportunity to be a part of it. So what What's your philosophy and worldview that makes you feel like that? To make... Um, I don't know. I think... For me, my own personal journey, I went through a stage in my life where I was really trying to define this, define a response for this question, what is the meaning of life? And at the end of that journey, I think my definition was life is an unexpected, sorry, is an uncertain sequence of events that leads to further complexity. Um, or a version of that. I I wrote it down somewhere, but that you know, sounds it's, like it's, chaos theory. <laughs> it kind of is, it or even the butterfly is. effect. It it kind of is. Um, so you know, I think through these stories, what I've also understood that it does not end with that complexity. It also there is simplicity at the end of it. You know, you've got to unpack that complexity, and unless you unpack that complexity life almost does not have any meaning you know and you know i'm rambling here but no i'm I just think... interested in your i mean I, it's clear you've been this is something i'm really interested in because i'm interested in you know large philosophical approaches to the meaning of life that's much more than just like thinking about your purpose or like i i, I agree with you there's something much larger than anyone can really calculate mathematically if you know what i mean we try yes. to because we're scientists yeah i just remember my definition that i'd come up with it was life is an uncertain quest to attain complexity that was the definition that i'd come up with so that means that you're saying humans seek complexity yes because it's, humans... they don't want it to be as simple as just be just do the right thing by people exactly and we are complex people, right? Like, um, well, supercomputers. Exactly. What is right and what is wrong? All of 
these are different measures that we have created for ourselves. So, you know. Well, someone create them for us. Exactly. So these are all different complex measures that, you know, someone's created that we're just following. But we need to find ourselves within these complex mechanisms people have, people before us have defined for us, right? And most and people so never are that curious. They just yeah, keep people don't on. <laughs> exactly. People don't question it. Um, but I think fortunately for me, with my line of work, I've the privilege and the honor to be a part of people's stories. And so with WAD, I was able to kind of peek into that moment where life was coming to an end and to gain so much insight from the people who are at that precipice. So I think Before it would be lovely if, Sam, can you um, help the audience understand this thing about choice? Some people may not be understanding mm. just what a deep thing this really is and how much pain people are actually in um, yes. before they're making these like some people are very in deep pain, aren't they, with esophageal cancer? I mean, there's so many mm. deep yeah. things happening. So with how the legislation in Queensland is kind of formulated, it is so that, you know, for someone to be approved of it, they have to be dying within the next 12 months. So whatever reason for that is, and usually it is, uh, well, it's, it has to be some kind of physical condition that is causing that death within the next 12 months. And so um, all the people that I talk to who have died or who were dying, who were a part of the VAD program, were at the later stages, the, late, the last stage of their cancer journey where, you know, they had maybe a few months left, four or five months left. And so for them... Um, the choice was so important because without that choice, every day is an uncertainty. Every day is a new day of pain. It's a new day of and that uncertain pain where you don't know if you will wake up the next day or not. But for those people who, are, who have chosen to go through the VAD process and have picked a date for them, for them every new day is a new opportunity. Um, so they like, you know, one of the people I interviewed, he said, like, I wake up every day, um, grateful for having woken up because I don't know how many days I have left. And now because I know that I'm going to die on this day, I look forward to moving towards that. Um, and so that is so profound, you know, having that choice to make this decision to, leave on that day kind of gives you a new sense of freedom that you didn't have when life was uncertain and you are waking up every new day with but so i think you've just described the human existential crisis yes <laughs> yes i did um but again coming back to that choice one of the men that i interviewed he said it was all about freedom for him Again, another version of this choice. For him, life has, he has been free all his life, right? He's, he grew up in different countries. He went to different countries and then he eventually ended up in Australia. But then he got diagnosed with cancer, at which point it was that terminal illness. But it was, the diagnosis itself was almost like shackles for him because he was grounded to being treated for it. And, but then they found they couldn't do anything more with, with, with that treatment for him, which meant that the rest of his life was uncertain. The rest of life of his life, he didn't have the freedom to, to choose. So picking a date, picking to go with that, he had that freedom to choose. He had the freedom to decide, okay, on this date, I'm going to go. So for him, it was all about that freedom, about that choice. But see, in saying that, not everyone who is approved for bad going through the process decides, okay, I'm going to die on that day. I'm going to take substance on that day and die. No, for, for a lot of people, it's just, okay, being approved and that their bad journey kind of ends there and they just organically die before um before taking that substance or before being um, 
injected with the substance by the nurses. So a lot of people die naturally, but then for some people, having that date is so important because yeah. it is an end to that pain that they're well, going through. And also we have to talk about being surrounded by everyone you love. Oh, yes. Uh, getting course. to, I mean, uh, talk to everyone. I mean, it's a whole yes. different thing than being in a hospital setting on your own, being revived. You know, there's so many other factors, aren't there, in that yeah. choice. I mean, it's, not, it's a choice of all sorts of things. <laughs> yeah. One of the people I talked to, he set his date and then he basically invited everyone he knew to come and visit him before he died. And his house was just flooded with people who knew him from the community, his friends. And he's a man with a massive legacy in that community. So people knew him there. So everyone came and visited him at least once before um, he died. And that's what he wanted. And that's what he got out of that choice. Um, and so that was so important to him. So I think it all comes with VAD. It all comes down to that choice, making that decision when you are in that journey, um, when you're in that journey of cancer, what if an ailment will eventually kill you in the next 12 months? It's that, it's that in, in, insane control or that choice that the people are given and they take that opportunity because they don't have any other option left. So, Sam, what's next? Well, um, are you going to life? Are you going to do birth and life <laughs> my, my 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 wife she's a midwife so she's already oh going no to way life. really yeah she's already doing life and i think between the two of us we kind of you've got have it covered. a full circle yeah <laughs> um so in terms of my journalistic endeavor i'm not sure i think i'm going to go into climate change so um that's my next story that i'm going to be working on as a journalist, um, but for me personally, my next journey is talking stories. Um, I really want to build that out, the business out, um, and I'm I'm surrounded by some really interesting, some really cool people who have been helping me do that. And in fact, one of the people who actually pushed me to pursue talking stories was one of the people that I interviewed at from the VAD project oh, because I interviewed him and he was like, Sam, I looked around for a service that recorded live stories and I couldn't find anything. Why yeah. don't you do this as a business? I was like, funny you say that. I've been in the process of putting something together. So he catalyzed like, it. Yeah, he catalyzed it. Um, and he's like, look, you need any support? Let me know. Um but he, again, was one of the main reasons that I was like, okay, no, I'm going to do this now. Because I attempted to start talking stories early in 2020, and it just wasn't the right time because no, of COVID and lockdowns. <laughs> no. just, um, there was a lot of interest, but it just didn't go anywhere because of the pandemic. And this is such a personal, in-person thing, so I decided I'm just going to park it then. Uh, but I'm so glad that I did that because I could then go on to work on these other projects, like the aged care project with my MPhil and then with the VAD yeah. project, which gave me the push that I needed to kind of revisit talking stories. and to kind of You're describing is the legacy. What happened when and why that led to the situation you're now in, rather than it becoming a bad story for you because you because you're only in yourself to actually be able to step back and be able to use this platform is another really powerful uh, mechanism of changing people's internal story. I fully agree. I fully agree. And I'd say that's me too. Um, yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think, you know, me as a storyteller is definitely inspired by the stories that I've heard um, from my ancestors, my grandparents, from those memories, from those stories. And that's basically what gives me, I think, the mental capacity to absorb a lot of stories. Um, yeah, I fully agree. So as we finish out, um, 
and wish you all the best with talking stories. So in in your new business that you're going to be running, so if people are interested, you're helping, they can come to your website. We'll put the link in. And this is where they can, if they want, there's all sorts of things people can do, right, across their own family stories or companies, businesses. I'm sure you're doing a whole variety of different things. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely am. So I'm focused on families. I'm pro- focused on professional legacies. And I'm also focused on organizations and places. Um, because stories are embedded in everything, right? Um, and as you said, it is what makes us who we are now um, as an individual, but also as a collective. Um and, and also how think, we could change it, that story. Yeah, yeah. To I the next agree. phase of evolution. To look at the future, um, to look towards the future. What can we do? We don't have to, to keep doing the same thing. No, we don't. No, we don't. What can we do to better ourselves and our environment? Um, and each and, other through connection. And each other. Yes, and it all comes down to stories. Um, it absolutely so, does. They're so powerful. so much power in it. So, Sam, thank you for doing that. Thank you. Thank you so I much. I just hope we can bring more of your work out to more people. So thank maybe you. maybe some of your interviews, I don't know, is there a place we can listen to some of those stories? Is there a place that people can go to for the VAD project? Uh, yes, there is a link for that. Um, okay, I'll, send I'll you put the that link. up as well. Yeah, yeah, I'll send you the link to that and I'll send you a link to my old sunshine stories. And so as, we, stories as, as well. we close out, I'd like you to take a deep breath and as a wise person now that's listened to lots of stories, I want you to crystallize one idea that you think could transform someone's life that's listening. Just take your time. There's no hurry. I really want some of your wisdom. So to transform them, looking forward. I think, see, I think my ideas all come down to stories. Um, I think my big big idea is very simple. It's listen. Just listen more. Um, and that'll kind of equip you with all the skills that you need to um, engage and change the future. But you've got to listen first. I think as a society, we don't listen enough. And so I think we should all collectively just spend some time listening to the people in our lives and the people in our society. So that's listen to understand their story. Yeah. Just just listen more. <laughs> I like that. I think that's my big idea. Just listen more. It's, and there's another person that I really adore. He's, he's a principal of a school in North Stradbroke Island, and his name is John Bray. And he said to me, he's worked amazing, like helping lots of people. He said, Selena, let silence do the heavy lifting. <laughs> Oh wow, that's that's amazing because um, you know when I interview people, silence plays a massive role in it because quite often you know I ask people a question and people kind of tell me their initial thought process as a response to that question. But if I feel like they haven't really revealed themselves or they haven't given me everything that they could give me, I just leave it at silence, and that silence inspire them to just dig a little bit deeper and that's when the real story comes out and I think and so this is what I just learned yesterday from another amazing person on uh, helping people understand this really big drama we have playing out on online child exploitation that's happening at an exponential speed beyond people's awareness in Queensland right now and in Australia and he's been trying to raise the awareness saying it is happening here everyone pay attention. This is a big, big deal. And, um, and he said to me, cause he's worked in really difficult with difficult kids, you know, kids that have had so much trauma. He was in Wales for a long time. He's just moved here. 
And he said to me that what he learned after trying to tell them what to do and getting them to talk and going through all the emotions, and he said, Selena, I just stopped talking. Because <laughs> I had run out of things to say and they weren't doing anything. This is like really kids that can get really physically violent with him and stuff. And so he said, I just ran out of things to say. So I drove somewhere. I just sat there. Yeah. He said five minutes towards the when they were getting close to the destination, everything came out. <laughs> and so John also said to me that he learned this from being in Indigenous communities. Um, mm. He worked in many, many schools across lots in Doomadgee and Warrabinda and lots of places across Queensland, Northern Territory. And he learned this from community. So he was saying mm. that they told him to start listening. Yep. And he came up with this through all his training over decades, these really big words of wisdom, I would say, like you have as well. So I, I'm 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 listening. Yes. <laughs> I feel like they should change um the word storyteller to story listener, really. That's because that's what I am, you know. I'm a story listener. And then I just kind of package that. Sounds like a good oh. name, Sam, for business. <laughs> yeah, story listeners. No one's got that um, one. No, maybe I should kind of play like that too. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> Quick, go on, write it, go on, copyright it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's so lovely to meet you. I look forward to con continuing this conversation, to be honest. I think there's a lot can be done and there's so much need right now. We're looking for a better story, and uh, and but not just a better story, but something that can really make a difference to make yep. the society not be always focused on we're going to hell in a hell you know, a basket and yeah. we're all going to die and you know we're all horrible people i think we're looking for that beauty inside people which i know you've been seeing in your stories yeah uh -huh. thank you so much for having me on your podcast lena it's been um, a wonderful honor and a privilege and just to even kind of talk about these things um because, you know, sometimes I forget to just kind of pause and think about it and just talk about it to someone. Yeah. yeah. So that's pretty cool. Thank you it so is. much for giving yeah. me the opportunity. I like meeting you too, and I really love your work. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you.